Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 321 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire and Belay. And we got a brand new segment called What I'm Thinking About. And actually what I'll do is I'll offer a few more thoughts on what Brad Lominick and I talk about at the end of today's interview. Uh, I'm going to talk about the middle disappearing from culture. So that's what I'm thinking about these days. I think it's fascinating. And we got this little segment now at the end of the show. My guests today are Chris Hodges and Brad Lominick. Chris is the founder of Church in the Highlands uh, in Alabama. They have 22 locations and an average attendance of fifty-five to 65,000 people a weekend. Yeah, insane. And he tells the story of how he got the vision for Church of the Highlands and also about some difficult passages in his life and uh, burning out and what that was like and getting depressed and then launching a church and also about what's changing in the culture. And this is the annual Rethink Roundtable episode that I do We get together uh, every year in Atlanta. We'll tell you more about that to do Rethink Leadership. And Chris Hodges is going to be there along with Simon Sinek and Brad Lominick and myself and Gordon McDonald and many others. So we'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. But I think you're going to be really glad that you tuned in. And uh, how have you been doing with your New Year's resolutions? We are about five weeks into things, six weeks into this. And some of you thought, you know what, this is the year I'm going to get more productive, right? Uh, Now you're realizing I need help. So I would encourage you to check out my friends at Belay. They're an incredible organization that has helped others revolutionize their productivity. Here's how they do it. They give you virtual assistance and bookkeeping services, and they do it for businesses, churches, not-for-profits. I have used them so many times over the last three or four years to help equip and staff my team And so have thousands of other leaders. So right now they're offering a free download of Productivity for the Win, your personal guide to a productive work week. And that's a gift for all podcast listeners to claim your download for free. Just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 31996. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 31996. And you'll get a free copy of Productivity for the Win, your personal guide to a productive week. And that's from our friends at Belay, and that'll get you closer to actually fulfilling your New Year's resolution. So uh, media needs for 2020. What are you doing in that department? There was a growing church that had a huge problem. Their in-house team was completely overwhelmed with the demands of media requests and graphics and videos. And you know how that goes. It's like this campus wants this and this ministry wants that. And so they couldn't get it all done, despite the fact that they were staff. So what they did was they turned to ProMedia Fire to get a media bundle. And they knew that hiring ProMedia Fire would get them a media team to handle the extra work for a fraction of the price of hiring additional staff. So we've used ProMedia Fire too for some of the uh, projects that we have inside my company. And whether you have a for-profit business, a large church, a mid-sized church, If you're a little bit overwhelmed with the media needs of your organization, or frankly, you just don't have anybody, reach out to promediafire.com. Go to promediafire.com forward slash carry, and you will get 10% off of plans for life. 
So head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry. Well, guys, really excited to bring you this year's roundtable. We are gathering in Atlanta uh, for an event called Rethink Leadership. It's happening April 29th and 30th. And you can bring your senior leaders, your executive team, basically your campus pastors, and also business leaders are welcome. Simon Sinek is there, Danielle Strickland, Darius Daniels, John Acuff, myself, Brad Lominick, Chris Hodges, Gordon McDonald, Andy Stanley, and so many more. And it's no hype, no music at Rethink Leadership, just leadership intensive for a couple of days. And I think it's paradigm shifting. We give you a little sample of what it's like here with this conversation with Chris Hodges and Brad Lominick. Chris Hodges, Brad Lominick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's going to be a, a good time together. Absolutely. This will be fun, Kerry. Dr. Lominick, uh, it's good to have you back. We do our annual Rethink Leadership Roundtable. And this year, uh, we've got Chris Hodges coming to the party, which is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Listen, he's, he's, he's forgotten so much more than I'll ever know. So uh, I'll yield my time most of the time to, to the senator from Alabama because uh, <laughs> he's passionate. The Church of the Highlands, if, uh, if you don't know, uh, obviously one of the most influential churches in America largest and chris is the obviously the the, the pastor behind the scenes mm-hmm. happened yeah uh, tell us a little bit chris I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners will know exactly who you are and your story but just give us a little bit of the trajectory of your leadership in church of the highlands well the the the, the trimmed down version is uh i was born and raised in baton rouge louisiana always wanted number two guy in the world and never aspired not even for a moment to be the senior pastor of a church went through a bout of depression in 1999 that now i looking back i can see it was god uh, i don't think he created it but he used it to get me out of a very comfortable nest got me praying and fasting and trying to figure out what my life was supposed to be all about at 38 years old and um fell in love with church planning in 2000 felt like i got a vision to plant a church back when Really, there weren't, there wasn't any church planning, anything. There wasn't any movements, books, podcasts. I don't think there were even podcasts, but there was nothing. And um, and so I, um, we just kind of blindly moved to Birmingham. That's another long story, how God really led us to this city. But I didn't know a soul. Uh, we had six weeks of of a pre- preparation for the launch, which was which is not nearly enough time, and uh, pretty much raised all my own money for it. And anyway, February 4th, 2001, we planted Church of the Highlands with 34 people. We had 400 in the first service. 200 came back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in any way, and then just little by little, this thing kept growing. And, and, and guys, uh, nobody's more amazed than me. Here we are. We just celebrated this past Sunday at the time of this recording, uh, our 19th anniversary as a church. And um, yeah, now we have 22 campuses and we're in 20 of Alabama's prisons every Sunday and, um, you know, and doing a lot to help other churches with ARC and GROW and now a college. And I still shake my head. I still, I still can't believe this is my life. <laughs> and, uh, and I truly, about half the time I pull on our properties, tears come to my eyes. I, I'm still, I'm, I've never lost the wonder of what the Lord has done. So I'm very, very grateful. Mm. How many how many people now would be at Church of the Highlands on the weekend, Chris? 
on, on a normal weekend, we will have about 55 to 65,000 people. Um, you know, and then we have, we have some spikes of, you know, on, on the big days and the Christmases and the Easter's and, we do a series called At the Movies every year that, you know, attracts another 20,000 people or so to, to, to that. But yeah, that's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's just um, unbelievable, really, to see the story. If it, you don't, go ahead, Chris, go ahead. If you know me, it's even more unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, and uh, the story of like leaders who went through a dark night of the soul, like some yeah. kind of bout of depression can you walk us back a little bit to the late 90s? Because I'll bet you that there are a lot of leaders who are right around that stage who are in exactly that place right now and maybe are wondering if it's over. Well, I do think there is a clinical depression that needs to be treated clinically or medically or counseling. But I do think uh, a lot of depression is assignment related in life. And you're really not living out your transcendent, redemptive calling that God has for all of us, that's what creates a darkness of the soul. I think the spirit and the spirit assignment that God has for us is connected to our souls. And so, and I do think that a lot of times when we're in the wrong place, not a bad place, just the wrong place, um, it, it can actually be a good place that's a wrong place, um, but just that that there's this um, unfulfilled, uh, you know something's missing, and I think when those don't line up, I think um, we have to find out, you know, when Elijah had his bout of depression, he wanted to take his own life. Um, the angel of the Lord encouraged him to get physically healthy. You know, he told him to sleep and eat. But then he gave him an assignment. He said, here, I want you to go do these things. I want you to go talk to this person, go give this message to this person. And it was the assignment, uh, Carrie. I remember the day that it happened, that I saw a vision and an open vision of me leading a church how hope jumped, jumped back into my soul within a matter of hours. I, I just, I had purpose again because I had a clear God, God assignment. And, um, and so I think it's very important. Isn't that interesting? I was uh, interviewing another leader. Her name is Kathy Heller and she'll be on the show this year. And she said the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's purpose. And I think there's something to that. I a hundred percent agree. What were you doing at the time, at 38, before you had this vision and before you started Church of the Highland? I've, I've done music my whole life. And so, and I did, of course, you know, every young pastor does uh, youth and students as well. So I, I was 18 years uh, in, in as an associate pastor at a very successful large church in, you know, in, in my hometown of Baton Rouge and very happy. I was in a, living in a home I built out in the country. I mean, you know, and I was paid better than I would have paid myself. I mean, I was, yeah. there was nothing on paper to be unhappy about. I was just miserable. Just completely wow. miserable. Yeah. Was that a gradual slide or did it hit you all at once? Uh, it was somewhat gradual. And, and, and then some circumstances, some unfortunate circumstances in family, I think, added to the pile. Mm. of. And again, I don't think God is the author of anything. My theology is I don't think he is the author of anything bad. Only, only. Every, every good and perfect gift comes from our God, but I do think he uses it. And he certainly used, it felt like, you know, they say when a, an eagle is trying to get the eaglets out of a very comfortable eagle's nest, the, the mother eagle will just pull out all the comfortable stuffing so that they, all they feel is the sticks poking at them. And that's kind of how it felt. I felt like the stuffing was coming out of my comfortable nest. 
And all I could feel were the barbs of these sticks saying, hey, it's time for you to go to look for something else. And of course, I did it through my pastor. I, I didn't just, you know, jump ship. Wow. I prayed and fasted and, and, and got, got counseling from my own pastor. And he, uh, he, he was actually the one who affirmed. He said, Chris, it's time for you to lead your own church, you know, so. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'm I'm play a little Gordon McDonald here. That that's being like way too generous. But Brad, how old were you when you hit your dark night of the soul? Uh, I was around that, you know, late 30s, uh, early 40s. I think I was 40. I think I was actually 40 year. I just turned 41. Yeah. And I was 41. I was 41 yeah. when I hit mine back in 06. And isn't that interesting? Because Gordon McDonald yeah. uh, is very. He's been on this podcast, and he has a theory. Yeah, that right around 38-ish to 42, you go through a major metamorphosis. And I have seen in my own friends, my own colleagues so often, and I know that there are thousands of people right in that bubble right now listening to this podcast. So no, that's good to know. And it's good to know there's hope. I mean, you're leading an incredibly productive life, Brad. So are you, I'm trying to over here. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to see that there's a comeback after that. And uh, that's good Chris, to know. I, can I jump in and ask Chris a question? Because I'm curious. You, you said, you know, you thought you would always be a number two for for sort of your season of career. What was that transition like? Because there's a lot of people out there who probably would say as a leader, they feel that that connection to a position. But but obviously that wasn't the only thing for you. So how do you navigate through that process? Well, the two fortunate things that I had already in my arsenal was I've done music my whole life. And boy, if you, if you can do music and speak, it's an unfair advantage <laughs> Yes, because you can really flow a service. You can. You, and, and I had that ability because I've, I've been doing music since I was seven years old. So I uh, had that. And then as a youth pastor, I was already speaking every week. I had been for 18 years, albeit to a bunch of teenagers, you know, but but. But still, I had the reps. And and I think that it, it made me a little bit uniquely equipped where a lot of the guys that now we work with, um, with ARC and others that are wanting to plant churches, uh, sometimes they come with that and sometimes they don't. And I think I do think it's important. So honestly, Brad, it was an easy transition. What I didn't know how to do was the money, the leadership. You know, I'd never had a board before. I didn't know how to build church government. I didn't know how to do elders. Those were the the learning curve areas that I really had to figure out pretty quickly. Never bought buildings before and you know, never paid a light bill for a church before. So I had had to figure out some of the business side of it. And that was the part that was um I, I was glad that it grew somewhat incrementally, not not all at the time. So we were port- we were portable for seven years. So and we had the offices in the basement of my house. So um so it, it was a slow grow at the beginning and it kind of exploded really around year six or seven is when we kind of really saw um, when we actually moved into our first permanent facility. The first time I met you, Chris, was with John Maxwell, and it was it was at a at some kind of roundtable, a small gathering in Atlanta at the office because I was working exactly. with John's organization. And one of the things you that you've done so well is you connect to people who have influence and they want to bring you along with them. And I saw that at that point, that was 2001 or two. And, you know, you were, here was John bringing you in and we're like, who's, who's this guy, you know, and, and you just have that ability to connect to people and then allow for them to mentor you, to uh, pour into you. And I think that's another thing for leaders that they need to be very aware of is 
is, you know, the who you get around many times will will help help you navigate some of those things you don't know how to do. Well, that's exactly how I did it. And I was kind of anticipating your question as well, Carrie. You said, you know, how did you do it? Well, I just forced my way into people to mentor me. The, the, John wasn't looking for me. I went looking for him. And honestly, he didn't give me the time of day at first. So I just found out what he was interested in and started serving it. He was interested in training leaders overseas. I said, okay, well, I'll just jump into that because I need him in my life. And and if I have any quality, it's, it's, I do have an insatiable appetite to learn and to grow. I, I could take you through our church and show you and tell you which church we learned that from. And I'm not talking about total imitations. Uh, um, I'm just talking about learning. I call it learning from proven models and then work your own DNA and your own values and your own vision into those. But but in many cases, uh, we just didn't reinvent the wheel. I, you know, I just I, same thing with Craig Rochelle. I, 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 I called Craig and said, can I just have a one hour of your time? I'll pay you for it. And he didn't know me from Adam, you know, and I flew into Oklahoma City um, and, and, and a one hour conversation turned into we I ended up staying for three days. We, we kind of <laughs> became fast friends. Yeah. And I and I saw all these campuses, took a lot of notes. And then next thing I know, he invited me to come serve a five year term on his board uh, at Life Church. And now I'm learning how they multiply their campuses. So, um, if again, if I've done anything uh, I, I'm, I could t- right now I'm learning from churches. I mean, I always think there's a church that knows something that I don't know. And I always say there's that every church has does something better than we do it for now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. going to learn it and they're going to become learning from me next year, you know? So, and I just, I, that's the fun part of my job. I still enjoy doing that. Brad, what are some of the things you've seen uh, Church of the Highlands and Chris do really well? Like from the seat where, what do you think some of the secret sauce is that you would observe as a third party? Yeah. Well, I think I think the curiosity and willingness to learn is a huge part of the success story of Church of the Highlands. And everybody on staff there that I've met from Chris all the way down uh, to, you know, some intern, they, they, have, a, they have a posture of, walking in with the moleskin and they don't, they don't act like, even though they could at this point, they could act like they know more, but they still walk in with that posture, which I think is, is both God honoring as well as uh, it's, it's endearing to people. You know, there's just a sense that you want to be around people who, who have a culture like that. Um, I would say the commitment and Chris can talk more about this because I know this is his legacy play, but the commitment to the next generation uh, perhaps might be the thing that that Highlands is most known for. I mean, you know, they've got thousands of students showing up to conferences. They've got a college that is is uh, is continuing to explode in both impact and influence and attendance. So I would say that has driven a lot of of the things that I've seen that feel like they're success stories. Uh, and then the third thing would be a commitment and. Uh, Chris, you can talk about this too. Like, like the system side of Highlands is so dialed in, but yet there's room for the spirit to move. And, you know, I think that the idea that the systems can drive what is happening and they can be incredibly focused on the building, you know, the, the, the actual, like not the building itself, but the building of the ministry while also giving room for the spirit. This is, this is, you know, this is where a lot of churches are trying to get to. 
And Church of the Highlands, I think, has been doing that from the beginning. And because Chris, you're you know you're a you're a systems expert. Like people show up at your feet now to understand like how'd you guys build this? But at the same time, you're not you're not a system. You're that's not all you do. Uh, it be, it some in some ways that became what you were known for. But those would be three that stand out to me. Can you comment on that, Chris? Because that is really a unique combination. I mean, first of all, for somebody who's artistic and musical to really have an understanding and appreciation for systems, I'm not saying that never happens. It's just not a normal pairing. <laughs> and and for somebody who really understands systems structure, and I mean, that's that's the word on the street from all the leaders I know. It's like, yeah, systems, nobody's better at systems than Church of the Highland among, uh, Highlands, among other things. How did that pairing show up? Well, it, it honestly comes from my background. I, I have the home church that I'm a part of had a very strong prayer and fasting and worship culture. And then in my home, my dad was the most brilliant financial mind that I'd ever known. And I mean, he was teaching me money at eight years old. He was, we'd go on a trip and he would put our spending money in envelopes and just teaching us budgeting and saying, Hey, you can, you know, for all doing it, I'll pay for it. But for not all doing it, you know, you can spend it all at the first gas station we come to. You can, it's the, here, here's your money. And he was teaching me, you know, these um, systems and with budgeting and finance as well as with schedule. My dad was a, was a meticulous a kind of accountant type personality. And, and I'm just very, very grateful for it. Then, then I kind of have a business acumen anyway, just naturally. I've, I've always actually been very, very good with money, just naturally. And I just love leadership and I love systems. I was very greatly impacted by uh, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, because mm-hmm. um, basically, you know, the thesis of the book, the E-Myth is, is that if you have a good product, you'll have a great company and you won't. It's, it's only the delivery of the product that determines the success of the company. And that's why inferior products like a McDonald's hamburger can be the largest hamburger franchise because the genius wasn't the quality of the burger. The genius was the delivery of the burger. It was how quickly they could get it to you. The Happy Meal, the playground, the drive through They were creating systems of delivery that make them successful. God is not a product, of course, but um, but but churches um, have great vision. I think the Bible gives us very clear vision, but a lot of times we haven't created systems that are ever going to deliver it. Um, and so what we do is what, what, what I think makes a great system. And according to the E-Myth book, what makes a great system is can everybody do it? Because if because if it's personality dependent, in other words, if only Church of the Highlands could do our system, then it's really not a great system because it's going to die. It's going to die the day I die. It's, it's personality driven. But if it's systems dependent, you know, the McDonald's hamburger will taste the same in Moscow as it does here in in, 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 in the United States. And it does. And so um, so I kind of bought into that concept. And even today, we make decisions about what we're going to do. And we ask by asking ourselves, could other churches do it? And if if the church of 500 couldn't do what we're doing because we feel called to help other churches, we don't do it. We only create systems that are both scalable and transferable. So anybody can do it anywhere. And and I don't know. So we've just we've just been committed to that for a, a long time because of the call we have to help other churches. What are some of the systems that 
have been the most helpful to you and the most helpful to others through ARC or through GROW or some of the other work you do in resourcing other leaders? Well, it all begins with a very clear vision. I'm not sure um, that churches, most churches don't know really what they're calling the touchdown line. So I'll go in when I consult, I'll say, okay, now what, what, are you, what is your scoreboard? What are you, what are you measuring? And I'll have the, the lead team that I'm consulting all write down what they think the answer to that question is. And, and guys, 100% of the time, there's never been an exception yet. I get great answers and different answers. <laughs> so everybody has a good answer, but they all are running a play toward a different touchdown line. And that's why there's, there's not a lot of really unity of vision. So it all begins with what are you going to measure? And for us, it's, we're measuring people getting saved, people getting pastored and cared for and healed, people finding their calling and their spiritual gift and then being mobilized. We're only measuring four things. Get them saved, get them healed, get them trained, get them mobilized. And and those are all quantifiable, measurable visions. Now a system, it just delivers it. And I always say that we're not doing it the right way. The right way is the way that works. And it, that's the right system. The right system, it's very simple. The right system is the one that works. So if nobody, if, if you have a goal for people to be saved and nobody's getting saved, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, so, so we get real pragmatic and say, you know, and, and, and that's a classic example. Most churches have a vision to reach lost people, but they haven't created anything that lost people are attracted to. So they have a bad system. But say what happens is, guys, is we fall in love with our system more than the vision. We like how we do it more than what it's supposed to produce. And so the really the job is to get them to fall out of love with their systems and get more pragmatic and stay in love with the vision. Now, I mean, large organization, over 50,000 in attendance, 22 locations. How do you keep your systems nimble? Like, I'm sure some stuff that was working five years ago probably is showing diminishing returns. Sure. How do you keep that kind of agility and flexibility at Church of the Highlands now? Yeah, just continually measuring it. That's how we just we're, we're never we never stop looking at the dashboard. You know, same thing with a car. When you first buy it, everything runs perfectly, but after about a hundred thousand miles, the needles are moving and bad. Well, so we but you won't know. You don't want to end up on the side of the road broken. You want to get an indicator <laughs> before it happens. So you have to create some dashboards and then check them regularly. And we teach, we teach churches how to do that as well. Can you share some key metrics that you're really, I know uh, the big four, but what, what would be an example of some warning signs where you're like, eh, I'm not sure this is going to work anymore. Uh, for us, small group attendance is huge. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause I do believe that you cannot get away from, I think the church has to get bigger because lost people matter, but it has to get smaller because individuals matter. So the church family matters. So in the words of Rick Warren, it has to get larger and smaller at the same time. Um, and I believe that. So we're very committed to that. It really is an unseen backbone of the church is, is the relational connection. So if the church ever grows beyond what it can touch, it'll be malnourished, just like a human body would be now malnourished if it doesn't receive physical touch. So even in the age of digital and we're delivering everything through these media platforms, you know, one of the things I say to those that are watching online is, I'm glad you're there, but there's nothing like being in the room. And I look at the big group that we call the church and say, look, you still need, you don't have to tell everybody what's going on in your life, but you better tell somebody. 
and, and take the mask off in front of someone and, and, and find some healing. So, so I think those are some major indicators um, for us. Uh, finances are one that I think that are critical. A lot of churches, um, that the month, when you get larger, you can do more. And just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Yeah. <laughs> and so those can get out of whack real easy, either in salaries or buildings. One of the, those two usually go beyond. So we just created, we've even created ceilings on those two areas financially, even though we could do it, we don't do it just to keep the discipline in the margins so that we can stay healthy. So there's a lot of different indicators, um, but those are some of the main ones. Chris, can you talk about financial margin? Because uh, so many churches, so many businesses actually struggle with cash flow and margin. And you guys have innovated in that area to the point that's rippling across a lot of churches in the United States and around the world now. So can you share the basic premise behind that? Two things are the basic premise. One is, you know, you got to be generous. You know, we want we our, our whole system, if you will, is based off of people's generosity and their tithing and their giving of offerings. And it's ridiculous if you're going to be dependent upon a system and then not engage your own self in that system. I think the church needs to learn how to be generous and find strategic places to invest outside of their church to help others. So the first 10 percent of what we receive, we give away strategically local, national, and international missions. I think it's very important. The second is the principle of margin. Proverbs 21:20 says, in the house of a wise person, there are stores of choice food and oil. The fool spends all that he has. So you never live to your limit. Uh, mar- the definition of margin is the distance between yourself and your limits. And you want to have a gap there so that you're not, I never wanted to be behind the pulpit needing that Sunday's offering because you'll preach differently. You'll lead differently. So we, so we actually wrote it into the bylaws of our church that a budget would be 90% of the previous year's income. And not most previous people, year's budget. I want to make sure people don't miss that previous year's income. This year's budget is based off of 90% of last year's income. So we're going into the year with 10% margin and then you add on the growth, whatever there is, and the margins grow. Mm. So now, and margin's not savings. Margin, margin is just space. So that you actually can say yes to a lot of things. So you can, if a tragedy happens, you don't have to take an offering. You can be generous that same day the tragedy happened. You can, if you have a building come available that, and you have margins. And now we've lived that way for this number of years. And it's probably one of the greatest principles uh, that we ever adopted. I see more and more churches trying to flip to that and toggle to that. Do you have any advice to churches who are like, yeah, well, we get 100%, we spend 101. Or we get 100%, we spend right. 100. Uh, what, is there an easy way to get started? Do you just bite the bullet and you know drop that to 90? Or can you, can you baby step in? What advice would you have to leaders on that? You pretty much have to baby step in, but it's no different than your personal finance. If, you, if you're fixing an upside down budget, in your personal finance, you, you, there's only two ways to do it. You can either increase income or, or decrease spending. Mm. So both really need to happen. But what we know we can control is the decrease of spending. So every church should go through the exercise and say, you know, what is not necessary? What are we spending money on that's not producing or contributing to the vision whatsoever? And let's just start. So it begins with creating margins by just decreasing unnecessary spending. And all of us have, we have it personally and we all have it in our churches and and we we have huge margins now and we still do this exercise. 
So we still take a look at the whole and say, where, you know, what what can we do to create um, uh, just more efficiency in our spending? And so, but then just do it 1% at a time. Um, I, I don't, I've not known any church that's been able to do 10% all at once. Um, and then uh, immediately start being generous though. Immediately right. find strategic missions to invest in. And because God supplies seed to sowers, Second Corinthians says. So he's got more, but he's not giving his more to everybody. Hmm. That's a, that, you know, that is a very biblical principle. It's so true. He supplies seed to people who know where to put it in the ground. <laughs> I mean, who would you give seed to? You'd give it to the farmer who knows how to farm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the God's no different. He has more and he's not giving it to everybody. He gives it to those who know what the more is for. Brad, anything you want to add to that or anything you want to ask Chris before we switch gears and we go in a new direction is so good. Listen, I'm taking notes over here. You guys yeah. keep going. I'm taking notes. I mean, I, I love the margin conversation because, I mean, it, margin is true in personal friendships, in personal leadership. If you have margin in in, in relationships, you, you have opportunities to create memories. You know, like the margin in your schedule allows you to say, I would, I would just ask Chris, you know, is that, how does that, how does that feed over into your own leadership? When you say margin, I'm guessing there's some margin that happens within the context of the way you lead, the way you calendar things, the, the way the, the, the leadership team is actually like uh, setting up. Cause that's, that's equally as much a part of what I think effective, healthy cultures are built on is that we got margin to, to do a lot of things. Yeah, and it begins with your time, honestly. So money margin is important, but time margin can change your life. So if you can create, uh, I call it the mastery of the morning. If you can really um, master your morning ritual or your morning routine and whatever starts right usually ends right. And a lot of us lose our margins and lose our lives by, by our morning routine. So for years, I've been very disciplined in I just don't give that time away. I use it for planning and thinking and praying and spending time with God and not being rushed, but being more living a focused life. Um, actually use tools that I've gotten from friends like Michael Hyatt and others who just where I just, you know, if you can master that morning time. And I think there's some genius to that, honestly, that a lot of people can incorporate. Same is true as with the, uh, on, the, on a weekly basis with the Sabbath. So it's astonishing to me the number of pastors who would never think about murder or adultery, but they break the Sabbath almost every week. You know, they don't really have a, a, a weekly margin that God instituted that was for you. <laughs> it's going to make your life better. And so th- those that's where I think, when I think about margin, they really play into my own life. Chris, I'd love to drill down on that. I'm so glad we went there in the conversation. This is a recurring theme on the podcast where I will break down people's morning routines. And it is counterintuitive. There you are leading... One of the largest churches in the country, you know, involved with the biggest church planting network on the scene right now, plus some other initiatives. And you're like, no, I don't give away my mornings and I take a Sabbath. So can you walk us, because there are people leading a fraction of what you lead who are just like, I don't even have time to like change my socks, right? And so (laughs) uh, I would love for you to just walk us through what a morning looks like. Like, can you break it down for us? And then I'd love to talk about your Sabbath. When nothing starts for me before 10 o'clock, my mind actually works best in the morning, so I don't give that time away. I'm usually up around 6, 6.30, so I'm not, the, I'm not, that's not crazy early, but I just don't give away those first three hours. I just don't give them away. 
for me, uh, I mean, if you really want to know, it starts yeah, with, I, I, do. I, drink, Let's get nerdy. I drink a, I, dr- I drink a big glass of water to rehydrate. First thing I do. Second thing I do is I get coffee. Third thing I do is I, I go straight to God's word and let my mind and let my heart just wake up. And I journal for just like three minutes. I have a, I have a 10 year journal where you just, you write three little sentences and I can see the same thing on that date over 10 years, which is a lot of fun for me. I spend, I spend time in prayer and then I actually use Michael Hyatt's full focus planner. Uh, and I write out my three, the three big tasks that I want to accomplish today. I don't get up from that chair until I've kind of reduced my whole day down to this day will be successful if I can have these three tasks uh, accomplished and I get those in my head and then usually go straight to my computer and put some thoughts that I either got in prayer or there's things while my brain is still strong and just kind of, you know, it's I'm real fresh in the morning. I'm a morning person. And then I get a quick little workout, get a shower and I'm at the office by 10. So that's my morning routine and I never change it. I hmm. just, you can't get a breakfast appointment with me. It just does. <laughs> it just is not going to happen, you know? And so, and so no meeting starts before 10 o'clock and it's had to look different ways. Obviously at, when my kids were at different stages now, my, my home is empty. And um, so it's, it's a little different now. There, when my kids were younger, I had to step into the, you know, and, and, and help my wife get some things moving in the house. Uh, but, but, but by and large, that's what it's looked like uh, all these years. Why do you think, because I mean, Michael Hyatt would say the same thing, that there's something really special about mornings. I would agree. And I was a relatively late convert, probably in my 30s, to mornings. And um, do you think there's something special to mornings? Because we've got night owls listening who would say, well, that's kind of my 11 p.m. or whatever. I've, I've never been there. I'm asleep at 11 p.m. I can't even think. So I just love your take on that. Do you think there's something special to mornings? Well, not to over-spiritualize it, but let me spiritualize it. I, I'm, I, I believe in the principle of first. I think everything you do first matters. I think the first of the year matters. That's why we have 21 days of prayer to start the year. I think the tithe matters. I think the fact that we go to church on the first day of the week matters. I think if, even, even if you didn't enjoy it, you were saying, God, you're first. I, I'm going I'm to attend this event on the first day of the week to just to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my week off spiritually versus all around me. And so I just, I believe in first. So I do think the first thoughts of the day matter. The first things you read matter. So even if you get up at the crack of noon, that's fine. But what did you read first? What did you think first? What did you say first? So was it Instagram or was it, you know, the one year Bible? I think that matters. Mm. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be early for people that are listening to say, well, I'm not a morning person. Well, then fine. But I do think you ought to monitor what you allow in your mind first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and for you, that's God's word. Same thing for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I'd rather I'd rather him talk to me than me talk to him. So I, my, <laughs> my morning time, my morning time mostly is, is him speaking into my life through his word than even me speaking to him through what's, you know, that it, that part is there. But I love spending time in God's word. Are you on your Bible person? I have been for almost 30 years. I oh, still wow. read. Yeah, the and I and I read other things as well, but I'll, that's just my baseline. And I, I 22 years it. for me. Yeah, since 1998. And uh, I skipped it one year and did something else, but man, that's really interesting. Can you walk us through your Sabbath when you take it, what that looks like, your day off? And I wish I could say this has always been a part of my life. I actually had a little burnout in 2011 when I buried my own dad, who was my best man in my wedding, and buried Tammy's dad, my wife's dad, who was my best friend in the world. 
uh, Billy Hornsby and just was burnt out. The church was 10 years old. We were peddled to the metal for 10 years. And, uh, and I just had a burnout moment and, um, and I, and I had not been faithful to a Sabbath. I am pleased to say for the last nine years, I am incredibly faithful to a Sabbath and Sabbath doesn't mean rest. It means cease from labors. So you can't produce, just don't produce. That's really the biggest concept is just don't produce. Don't do anything produce that produces. So I have to even be careful how much Bible I read because I'll turn it into a message. It's, <laughs> it, I'm serious. I have to be really yeah. careful. Even in my devotional time on my Sabbath, that sounds so funny because I'll turn it into work in a second and enjoy it. But but to not produce. And honestly, Carrie, the only thing I really got have to make, well, really two things I have to make sure I do to make it successful is is don't go digital. I, I don't go digital the whole day. So the phone stays off. If you, you've got to find me the old school way, you got to come find me <laughs> if you want me. And then secondly, I, I have to be outside. A- outdoors replenishes me. Yeah. So if it's gardening or golfing, it doesn't matter. I have to do something outside. And, and, um, and so, and honestly, uh, for, for the past really, I've been married 34 years this year. Uh, I've always included either a date lunch or a date night with my wife all, all on the Sabbath. And so that was, and you know, the, in the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath was the day where you did, you had your biggest meals, you took long walks, you, you it, it included some sleep rest, but it really wasn't around that. It was around all the things that replenish your soul. And I just think it's important. What difference does that make to you? Since you look at, you know, Chris Hodges, nine years with Sabbath and many years without, how are you different because of that rhythm and that discipline? You know, when the Jewish people will teach it, they say you don't rest because you're tired. You got tired. You rest so you don't get tired. So it so you don't end the week with the Sabbath. So it's not the recouping of all the hard work. You start the week with Sabbath. You rest well enough so you have a full tank to go into the week. And that's what I've noticed, Carrie, is that now I go into the week just with a full tank in my body and my soul and in my spirit. And so I'm not ca- I don't feel like I'm catching up all the time uh, in my mind and in my heart. When is your Sabbath? What, what actual day of the week do you take? It's Monday. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's Monday for me. And, and so, um, and, and uh, yeah, because I am the... I am the most tired after a weekend, obviously. And, um, so, I, and, and it just has been a, I know some guys, um, you know, do it, you know, later in the week. I, I really like the right after my biggest, to me, the biggest thing of the week for me is a, is a weekend. And that kind of ends my week for me. That Sunday ends my week. And now I start fresh with a rest with rest on a Monday and then start all my meetings and things that I do in the office on Tuesday. That was that was gold, by the way. Just so helpful. Um, I want to flip to next gen trends because both of you spend a lot of time building into next generation. Brad, every time I talk to you, you've got some gathering in London, England, or Colorado, or wherever of just young leaders that you're building into. And Chris, I mean, anybody who follows you on Instagram knows that that's a huge part of your life. You're you're building into leaders, fifteen, twenty, twenty five years younger than you and sort of the next generation of large church leaders and, and other leaders as well. I want to ask you both, what is 
resonating with the next generation and what isn't resonating with the next generation. We live in a pretty rapidly changing culture and church is changing, culture is changing, the way we express ourselves is changing. So what do you see as some of the trends among the next generation? Good question. I'll, I'll jump in. And by the way, this is the, the reason this podcast and this medium is so helpful is because I'm sitting here taking notes while you guys are talking. There's thousands of other listeners who are doing the same thing. So I, I love this medium. Um, a couple things stand out for me. Uh, one is that younger leaders want, they want access up close uh, compared to they want content from a distance. And, you know, so the lesson there for me as a, as a transition leader, as somebody in the middle, sort of, uh, you know, trying to help older leaders and younger leaders connect is as much as you can find ways to create environments where you're going to be in person and in the room together. And this is one of the things Chris does so well. Like you see a lot of times he's gathering 10 or 12, 15, 20, 20 somethings or 30 somethings, and they're sitting in a circle and they're hanging out, asking him questions. Carrie, you do the same thing. Like that's, I think that's what young leaders are starving for is they, they don't, I mean, they're, it's not that they're anti-conference. They'll still show up to gatherings, but what they really desire and hunger is that chance to actually engage and interact. And I think a lot of that's because they're starving for mentors. There, there's a there's a there's a, a dearth there, a vacuum of sort of spiritual fathers that have been able to walk alongside them. So that that's one that stands out for me. I'll let Chris jump in, and I'll maybe think of another one or two. Well, no, I totally agree, and I know, Carrie, you've written on this extensively that um, that that you know we have we're in a we're in a content and information overload, and I hundred percent agree. I think it's true, by the way, in in how we deliver church as a whole, um, that people want more experiential uh, environments than than just informational environments. I to- I totally agree, and and yeah, First Corinthians four says that you know we have plenty of teachers. So let's just update that verse to 2020 and say we have plenty of, of, of websites. We have plenty of conferences. We, you know, we have plenty, but you have very few fathers. And, we have, and, and, and that's what it is what they're looking for. And, and when I say fathers, that's not gender specific. That just that means mentoring at in any gender um, that, that people are looking for that. And, and I am around a lot of the younger guys that are just starting out in ministry and some of the ones that are young and, and kind of, you know, blowing things up and, and they, they, I get three, four texts a week on, Hey, how do you do this? What's, what do I do with this? How do I answer this? And they're longing for, you know, just personal coaching. And, um, and I, and, and I, and I'm 56 now that didn't even happen in me to be in, in that role till I kind of turned about 50 years old. And, and, but I, I love it. I, I believe in it. And in some ways I even find more joy seeing them succeed than anything that I do. And I think it's what the Lord always intended. I think that's how, I think that's how Jesus modeled his life. You know, he didn't, he didn't preach that many sermons. He spent a lot of time with his disciples. And, um, and I think that's very important. And I I would add this too, that a lot of the, the things that we sometimes think are important or institutions or, um, hierarchies that we, we feel like are needed the next generation leader, not, not just doesn't even, it's not even on their radar, but they dislike that. So as an example, here would be one is, 
you know, denominations or uh, the, the network, um, nobody's asking anymore who's in their 20s or 30s and seems to have some influence. Hey, what what are you connected to? Like, are you Baptist? Are you charismatic? Are you uh, are you non-denominational? Are you ARC? Are you Hillsong? Like, they actually just want things that are working and that are biblical. So it's not that those it's not that those things don't matter anymore, but it's not important. Like the where it used to be really important to us, we would say as an older leader, hey, if you're not part of my thing. Or, or connected to who I'm connected to, then I really can't hang out with you. Just the opposite now. Like we're actually more interested in hanging out with somebody who might who might think differently than we do theologically or have different backgrounds. And so that's a huge one is if you're still stuck as a leader and I'm only hanging out with people who think and act and see the world like I do, um, it it might be time for you to to rethink that because the young leader that's not something that's even on their radar. Well, uh, that is such a good point, and it's very, very true. I had a conversation yesterday with a leader, next-gen leader, who's like, I'm actually, he flew all the way across the country, and he said, I actually need to be with people who I disagree with or don't think like me or they're from a different tribe. Do you see that too, Chris? Oh, sure, yeah. And and it's actually fun to be in the the discussion because no one's defending their positions. We're all learning from each other. And I think that's what it should look like. Well, I know we've just got a few more minutes with Chris, and I want to really honor your time. And you're going to be with us in Atlanta for Rethink Leadership, and we'll be able to pick your brain on stage, but also through affinity sessions and table conversations. And that's how we organize things. But I want to ask you just about model shifts, and maybe we can wrap that up. And then Brad, you and I can hang on and uh, and wrap this conversation up when we let Chris go. But um Love to ask you about model conversations because Church of the Highlands, Church of the Highlands, sorry, has like a model, an approach to church, but you're also mentoring uh, leaders who have a different approach to church. So, what do you see changing, and what do you see staying the same? The the, the conversation I want to have is be pragmatic. So mm. let's let's don't fall in love with our models or our systems if they're not working. <laughs> and I just don't let leaders defend something that's not working. Because I, I, at the end of the day, we have an assignment. We call it the Great Commission. And I, so, I, so whether you wear, I wear a sport coat. If you wear jeans with 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 you know hole in in the knee, that's fine. I don't debate that if it's working. <laughs> so <laughs> I do think it's just bring people back to the conversation of let's be, get back in love with the vision that God's given us to to get lost people saved, saved people pastored, pastored people discipled, discipled people mobilized. That's our assignment. Say it how you want to say it, but that is our assignment. And uh, and it matters. The assignment matters. That's what we're on the earth to do. And, you know, the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 3, that one day our, our work will be shown for the quality of work that it was. And you'll still be in heaven. It says you'll still be saved, but you don't want your life's work to be burned up. <laughs> I want to. I want to live my life, you know, making that assignment count. So, um, and then so the models are there to me. Those are the systems that I don't think we have the luxury of having a personal preference on. Well, I like this. Well, kind of doesn't matter what you like if it's not working, <laughs> you know. So yeah. I just like having that conversation. That's that's where I want to go with it. So I love all the models. I, I enjoy all of the different ways that it does work. And again, like I already said, there I think there's 
almost every church can teach us something of how we can be better at what we do. But at the end of the day, it's for a purpose. Mm. And I think, I think, I think that we need to talk about that more. Honestly, is I don't think the models and the trends. I think they're helpful, but I think at the end of the day, just that we that the assignment's not going to change. That lost people need Jesus. There still is only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And so I'll do anything short of sin. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what the model is, just as long as people are finding Jesus. And you know, so that. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's how that's how I think through it all. Really helpful, Chris. I want to thank hey, you so much for being with before, us. I'm hey, but sorry. Before let me jump in. I'm sorry. I I do want Chris to talk before he before he jumps off about Highlands College. I mentioned yeah. that earlier, and because this this to me is is such a distinct about Church of the Highlands, but it's also uh, something that they've seen as a. Uh, uh, a, a way to impact the next generation. So just jump in and talk about that a little bit, Chris, because I want people to hear what you all are doing. Well, simply put, you know, I, I do think that the academic training of young leaders is is in, incredibly important. But I think the best learning is not just in the academic setting. I think it's in the life skill, ministry skill setting. They have to have a living laboratory to do it in. You separate training from the local church, you won't get a fully trained person. We can both all of us can look back at what we know about ministry and most of it did not come from the schools we went to. It came from the the people who spoke into our lives and the churches we served in up to this point. So if you can combine the two, the whole goal was to get the the academic setting back into the local church setting so that the two can marry together. And and the goal is really for Luke chapter 10, verse two, the harvest is plentiful. There are people who would get saved today. There are people who eat a meal today. There'd be people who'd receive prayer today if we had the workers to do it. It's never going to be a harvest problem. It's always going to be a worker problem. And so this is just to supply the Great Commission with the workers that are needed. Our goal, and we're not there yet, I need about another four to six years. We're building it in the academy model. I actually taught a religion class at the Air Force Academy. And the academy model, they're a cadet if they're awake. I mean, they're, if they're not in a classroom, they're jumping out of an airplane. You know, there's, it's nonstop training. So they invest heavily, like the government pays for the whole thing, but 100% of the graduates go into their degree field. Hmm. So that's, we, we're, we're only taking students who 100% of them want to go into the ministry. So this is not for marketplace ministry. This is like, you want to go to full-time ministry. And then we're going to train you, and then we're we're building an endowment right now to to supply the the tuition that's needed so that that can happen, so they can one hundred percent can graduate and go straight into that harvest field. So that's 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 kind of where we are. We have eleven hundred students now, but but that is the vision is just to supply the Great Commission with the workers that are needed. That's awesome. Well, Chris Hodges, thank you so much. I so appreciate uh, everything that you bring to the wider church, to uh, your churches, and we can't wait to hang out in Atlanta. So it's going to be great. Love and respect both of you very much. Thank you, Chris. Brad, this is uh, what is on tap, right, for us at the end of April in Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. April 29th and 30th and May 1st, Mm -hmm. we think leadership. And Carrie, I don't know about you, but man, I, I'm equally, if not more excited about this year than I have been for the last, what, five now? 
Is this yeah, yeah, this year? is this is number five. I mean, yeah. Horst Schultze, Les McEwen, they kind of brought down the house in previous years, but uh, you have Simon Sinek coming. So how do you know yeah, Simon? Simon? Is that from Catalyst Days? Uh, it is. And we actually, Simon and I first met at a charity water event in New York. Oh, it's Scott Harrison. Scott was, yeah. Scott was putting on uh, one of his gatherings for some of the folks involved and and Simon and I ended up at the same table. And oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, we connected, and this was this was two thousand nine or ten, yeah. and so we stayed in touch. And obviously, he he's become a global name. I mean, at that Phenomenal. time, people yeah people knew of him, but now everybody knows Simon, and so it's fun to have him there. I mean, Gordon McDonald's going to be with us. Mm-hmm. I was emailing Gordon. You know, he's the coolest guy because we have this email friendship, and I had heard rumors that he will start an email friendship with you. So we email couple times a month, just about what's going on in our lives. And so he has this thing. I'm going to see if I can get him to talk about it called the view from 80. And so if you listen back, we'll link to it in the show notes. But, uh, and he sent me a copy in September and when I met with him and then on the weekend, he emailed me an updated list. And it's just like the way eight decades of life, this is what I'm seeing. He says, every few months, I just update it. So I'm going to see if we can uh, drill down on some of those points uh, at Rethink Leadership. And Gordon will be leading an affinity session as well, which means that you can get up close and personal with him. Right. Yeah. And and obviously, Chris, I mean, you, you just heard a snapshot of the wisdom that Chris Hodges brings to the table. And yeah. arguably, you know, uh, among younger friends of mine who are, who are, when you ask them sort of, who do you want to go hang out with and, and really like a Q and a environment with many of them will say Chris Hodges these days, uh, because you can just tell from listening to that conversation, there's, there's just a lot, there's a lot there, uh, both in terms of experience and wisdom, but also just in terms of, of the heartbeat of, of following Jesus and being a pastor who is actually pastoring pastors. So that it's, it's going to be a great year and I'm excited, man, to, get to be a fly on the wall. Well, you're more than a fly on the wall. And uh, yeah, so we've got, uh, we got opportunities for you guys to register. It's at rethinkleadership.com. Brad and I will be there hosting the event. I think I'm doing a talk or two and uh, it'll be, it'll be a really, really good time. We got Andy Stanley, Danielle Strickland, uh, the creator of Blues Clues, correct? We have that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, who else? Who else? We have Darius Daniels. Who else is Darius, speaking? Kara, Kara is going to be with us. Kara Powell. She's, you know, yeah. she's usually part of, of Rethink. John Acuff will be there. Uh, uh-huh. we, we've got a, we've got a great uh, list of folks who will be part. So again, yeah. if you're, if, if you've never been to Rethink, you know, part of the idea here is senior pastor, lead pastor, executive pastor, and it's a curated group. So 500 seats, it's capped. Uh, everybody's sitting at tables. We want it to be conversational in nature. There's, there's no fluff. I mean, no hype, no fluff, no music, no program. It is, it is, uh, stripped down leadership for two days and, and up close and personal. One of my favorite sessions, I think we'll do it again. You and I talk about trends and it feels like we're in the round. It almost feels like, you know, we're on the floor of the Roman Coliseum in the room we do it in. And there's like right. 50, 60 leaders crowded in and it's just like, take shots. Like it's, it's a lot of fun. So it's really up close yeah. and personal. It's access and insight, not just content. And pretty much everyone's limited to like 
18 to 25 minute talks. So you're not right. going to get some 40 minute keynote that went nowhere you were hoping it would go. Right. Yes. And no, and I love this phrase. You do this all the time. No sugar sticks. What's a sugar stick? Yeah. That would be the talk you've done at every other conference out there. Yeah. Correct. Or so, the sermon. Yeah. There's no sermons. Or the sermon. It's like you're yeah. not allowed to bring a sermon. So right. basically it's way, actual. We, yeah. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't get to hit on your, on some of your trends for 2020 no. that I listen, if you haven't gone and, and read the blog post that Carrie put up, uh, you need to do yourself a favor and go, go dig into that and actually print it off or, or email it to your team and, and have a conversation about the six trends that you said, Carrie, are, are the ones that you see as the leading disruptions for 2020. Cause there's so much, there's so much wisdom in what you're, what you're talking about, but also how do we respond to it? As the well, church? we could have gone there with Chris, right? Like if you look at content-based attendance will decline and movements, moments, and missions will grow. Like maybe we'll explore that or rethink leadership, but that's a, that's a frustrating, even with long form podcasting, it's like, this could have been three hours. Like, you know, so, okay, your systems and your musical, your systems and experience, like that's a rare combination, but I think it also paths, pays, paves the way to the future. It's a path to the future. And Louis Giglio and I talked about that on this show. We'll link to that as well. But uh, growing churches will be led by younger leaders, right? That's just, yeah. that's a weird thing. And the succession crisis will become more of a crisis. And uh, I love, see, we could have spent time there because what is Chris doing? He's got like a truly intergenerational team. Uh, young leaders love being around him. It's not a whole bunch of guys in their mid-50s running church. And uh, yeah, there's some other trends as well. So we'll link to that in the show notes. My favorite of this year is just, I don't know, Brad, maybe we can riff on this before we, we hang up today, but uh, the middle is disappearing from culture. Like you look yeah. at the disappearance of the mall, the department store, and that whole idea of these are average prices with average goods for average people. And the, the bottom end is thriving. Like Walmart is doing amazing. Like they actually are killing it and discount stores and budget travel is doing just fine. And then so is the high end. Like you can buy $150 yoga pants and like middle-class people are doing that, right? Which is really yeah. weird. So the $38 yoga pant is not doing particularly well, but the $150 yoga pant, the high-end vacation, the uh, curated dining experience with the weird pairings, like those are doing just great and exotic travel is doing great, but the middle's gone. And what does that mean out of culture? Well, I don't know, because a lot of us shoot for the middle. And the right. middle is where mediocrity lives. Churches do that. Businesses do that. So I'm just paying attention to the middle disappearing from culture, trying to figure out what that means for those of us who lead. Well, and think about the middle as it relates to things like Blockbuster or right. the, ta the taxi industry. Uh, or anything that that revolved around being a connector of sort of the customer and the end product, all of that middle has now gone. You're through. right. Blockbuster was the middleman, so to speak, yeah. right? Like you can't get to Hollywood without, and now it's Netflix or whatever, but the reality is there's no physical barrier anymore. And I remember exactly. we did that because we live in the middle of nowhere, as you know. Uh, but when we moved a decade ago, 11 years ago into this new house, we got high-speed internet. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, my life has changed. This was incredible. And, uh, you know, suddenly just anything you want right there. It was cool. Think about the travel agent. Remember the days of calling your travel agent? 
Oh, yeah. And actually, you have to book a flight or a trip through your travel agent. Now you have so many options. Travel agents don't exist anymore. Well, it's interesting, though. Yes and no, because Adam Duckworth, I just interviewed Adam, and he'll be on the show. He's reinventing travel through a digital company, Travelmation. And what's really interesting is that was another trend in another post I wrote on leadership trends, but DIY, which is one mode of travel, is also yep. now giving way to do it for me. So you can call Adam at Travelmation and it's like, book my Disney experience. And they're like, well, do you want Animal Kingdom or do you want Star Wars Galaxy Edge or do you want this? And then you don't even have to think and they get paid by Disney and by other organizations right. so it doesn't cost you more. So I think there's so much opportunity and like most of us, we're just living in a model that doesn't exist anymore. But what you said is true. Like the the this the medium that represents mediocrity or or average is yes. what's gone away. So what Adam is creating is not it is a distribution channel, but it's a curated distribution channel that allows you to connect to something that you wouldn't necessarily do on your own. It's a higher it's, end experience. Yes, exactly. It's a turnkey solution, right? Exactly. For your family. Because if you're going to drop, I think he said the average is four to 6,000 that a family will drop on a, on a visit to Disney. Like that's a, that's a big ticket item. Um, but we're going to treat you like a white glove service, which is yeah. different than the traditional travel agent where you get stuck eating breakfast cereal at some cheap hotel and you overpaid for it. So I think, I think I heard Seth say this, like the, 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 the network hub the idea that that what used to be the network leader or the network hub was that you had information that other people didn't have. And right. therefore, because you had information, you were in power. I mean, every youth pastor in America right now, uh, your students are not scarce on information. In fact, they're, they're fact-checking you as you're doing the sermon. Mm -hmm. So no longer do you have power over them as a youth pastor because you have more information than they do. They can get it faster, quicker, and actually more more accurate than you can. So what do you have that you can now trade as an asset as a youth pastor is you have relational equity. Like you actually are you're able to create things that are are more analog in nature. And this is I mean David Kinneman's spoken about this. You and you, you guys talked about it with your uh, interview of him recently, you know, that all of that's changing the way we approach how we lead. And the curated leader is, is the one now who has the influence, the, the, yeah. the leader who's, who's actually gathering people and giving them something they can't get anywhere else. And the other thing you can get in that sea of information, because not everything you read on Reddit is accurate, believe it or not. Did you know that? I did I, not know. I, that. Exactly. <laughs> I just learned that today. Not everything is accurate on the internet. Are you kidding me? But what you can bring, and this is one of the fun things about what I get to do these days, is hopefully you can bring a little bit of insight and hopefully you can bring a little bit of meaning because information is everywhere, but insight is still relatively rare. And if you can guide teenagers, if you can lead teenagers, if you can help steer them in the right direction and you have that access to them and that kind of uh, relationship where it's like, well, you know, what about this? That is what is sorely missing from culture. And you know what I what I love about Rethink Leadership is it is an opportunity. I see it as a paradigm shifting event where we try to take the latest trends, the latest thoughts, and actually try to curate those conversations so that you get 
direction and guidance and insight that you're never going to get when you're just trying to get to Sunday, get to Sunday or run. And it's open to business leaders too, but to, to run your business. So anyway, you guys can go to rethinkleadership.com. Brad and I will be there. We do this Tuesday night reception. Everyone's invited if you fly in early and we just kind of yeah. hang out and we can chat and connect and it's a pretty casual vibe. True story. And don't, I would say don't, don't, uh, don't wait too long to register. I, you yeah, know, there, there is it. There is a uh, price, a price increase or a, a discount up until February 20th. You may be listening to this after that. So uh, maybe we'll still be able to offer you something, but don't, don't wait, go ahead and get registered and, and uh, it'll, it's, it's going to sell out. It, does, it has every year. So th- yeah, yeah. we want you to have a seat. Well, Brad, once again, it's always fun. Thanks, my friend. It is, man. Thanks. Thanks for curating that conversation. And I got a lot of notes here from, from you and Chris talking that I'm going to, I'm going to think about for a while. Cause that was, I, I felt like a fly on the wall, just getting to, to be a part of the conversation and listen. Well, to you it. asked some great questions. You really did. And I love his morning stuff. And you know what? I'm true confession. I'm four Sabbaths into a Sabbath rhythm. So mm-hmm. that one owned me. He's nine years. I'm four. <laughs> we're, all, we're all somewhere in our journey, right? Oh, uh, we are. All right, Brad. Thanks so much, man. Well, guys, if you want to register for Rethink Leadership, head on over to RethinkLeadership.com now. You can get the best rates while you still can. It's going to be an awful lot of fun, and I am uh, so pumped to welcome you there. And yeah, it is intimate and interactive. By the way, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the disappearing middle from culture, and I've got some ideas about how to respond to that. In the meantime, I'd love to share with you what is next on the podcast. So when we come back, We've got Dr. James Emery White. Jim White uh, created quite a few headlines in some circles last year when he decided to shut down all the locations of his church to merge back into one. And I talked to him about why he did that, the future of digital outreach, and how to grow your church younger as a leader grows older. Here's an excerpt from next week's conversation. One of the things that I've blogged about and I've written about is that uh, the multi-site began to explode or began on the scene in the 1990s, late 90s. The first book came out in like 03 or 04 and things of that nature. Our, our first site was 2003. The iPhone wasn't released till 2007. Yeah. I mean, the whole revolution happened after this began to be explored as a strategy. So in one sense, it sounds weird to say multi-site is dated. But from a technological standpoint, in terms of how that's changed the game, yes, it's dated. Second, it's a physical approach in a digital world. The whole reason for the multi-site was that you were trying to remove physical barriers. Uh, For us, at least, it was all about making it easier for someone who attends Mac to invite a friend and to check things out. Now, the only way a friend could, who was invited, could check things out was a physical visit uh, back when we started. I mean, it was a physical thing. So the multi-site was a physical uh, reaction to a physical barrier. So we'll have that for you on YouTube and also here on the audio stream on the podcast. Super excited for that episode. And subscribers, you get it automatically for free. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And I want to thank Belay, who's got a free resource for you called Productivity for the Win. Just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 31996 to get that. And if you want 10% off of your media needs for life, Go to promediafire.com forward slash carry and get a team of media experts helping you for a fraction of the cost of hiring it out yourself. 
And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. So I do really enjoy conversations like this one where we're talking about what's changing because I really think historians are going to look back on our time and era and go, wow, so much changed. So what's changing? Sometimes when you're in the moment, it's hard to see. So Brad referenced a blog post that I wrote called Five Disruptive Leadership Trends that Are Rule 2020. And I kind of zeroed in on the fact that the middle is disappearing. We'll link to this in the show notes if you want more. And what I meant by that, you already heard that in the podcast, you know, malls are disappearing, department stores are disappearing, but what opportunities does that open up? Well, a couple of things. One, the middle is wide open. I don't know what you'll do with it because no one else is succeeding there, but hey, there's probably a great opportunity in retail. There's a great opportunity to kind of reclaim the middle. I I think that's true politically, right? Like, wouldn't it be great to have a centrist candidate running somewhere? Wouldn't that be awesome? I think most people are kind of in the middle rather than to one extreme. So there's an opportunity. But I want to think about what it means for those of us who, you know, in the church world or in the retail world or in the business world are trying to figure out, well, what do you do when the middle is disappearing? Well, first of all, the middle is where mediocrity lives. So you you don't want to be there and you can compete on price. So maybe you're like, you know what, we're just going to discount everything and we're just going to make it all cheaper. Here's the challenge with that. The challenge with making everything cheaper is it's a race to the bottom. At a certain point, you're just making everything worse. And I mean, you can compete there. I just think it's really hard to win at scale. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who will undercut you. And that's true of a major retailer. That's also true of somebody who's just starting up. So, you know, we had Jasmine Starr on the podcast and she said, you know, when I'm starting up as an independent photographer, there's always somebody who'll do it for half the price I am. You're going to charge a hundred bucks to shoot a wedding. You can find somebody who'll do it for 50. Now they may not do it well, but I think when you're competing on price, that's a real challenge. So do you want to compete on the higher end of the market? And I think this is where all the low hanging fruit is. So that doesn't necessarily mean raising your prices, but what it does mean is producing a really quality personal experience. So some independent bookstores are actually making a comeback and they're doing it by being more human and creating great environments for guests. So I saw an article, I don't know, it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever, uh, but just about some New York, some Manhattan bookstores that are doing just fine by offering like some great coffee, a curated experience. And not everybody wants to buy their books off Amazon, right? Like not everybody wants to just be a click away and have it dropped off on their doorstep. A lot of people just want to go out and browse. And if you have a staff that are knowledgeable, that don't just point and say, oh, you're interested in leadership? Well, if you love that book, have you thought about this? And rather than an algorithm doing it, having a human being doing it. You know, if you have a guest services team at your church, actually make sure that they're into guest services. They're not just filling a slot or, um, you know, some kind of position and they're not on, you know, robot mode where they're just doing what they were told to do, but actually look people in the eye, greet them, smile, uh, walk them over, uh, don't point, uh, walk with somebody. I mean, those things, man, do you know how hungry our culture is for that kind of service? And it's just not that hard. You can train your guest services team train your customer service people. You can train so many people into that. And I would look at uh, what you can do to make whatever you do more personal, more generous, more empathetic, and more human. And remember, if you decide to head to the bottom, even if you win the race to the bottom, all you get is the bottom. So those are a few extra thoughts 
on the middle disappearing from culture. I hope you find them helpful. Thanks so much for listening today. Can't wait to be back with a fresh episode. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.